I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in downtown Baltimore. This episode, of course, I watched Kindred on <laughs> Hulu. Um, all eight episodes, I binged them, um, and I want to talk about it. But first, I also watched the first episode of that Harry and Meghan um, doc on Netflix. And I thought I was going to talk about it extensively, but I never made it beyond the first episode. I know a lot of people are watching it. Um, and I, this is what I want to say. I might go back to it. But I think the first thing that I want to say is it shocked me. how few black people were in her inner circle. Um, I don't know why I thought that she would have more. I, I guess I don't know much about Megan. I, I knew that she identified as biracial. I didn't realize that the folks that would, and maybe later in the doc, you, you see more black people but I was surprised at how few black people I saw. I was also surprised that was I surprised that that we did I didn't really see many people from Harry's point of view in the first episode. I guess I wasn't. I had a lot of emotions. Um I, like many other black Americans and, and black folk in the diaspora, I think many of those of us who did uh, relate to Princess Diana or, or, yeah, relate to her in some way, I was a child. And I've, I've talked about this before, but I, I was a child watching her homegoing, or well, funeral. For, for her, it would have been a funeral. For, for non-black folks, it's a funeral. I remember watching the whole thing because it was always on TV. I must have watched the actual service at least a dozen times as a child. And the emotion that 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 watching this this first episode of the doc kind of stirred up in me was a lot. Um, I distinctly remember people like George Clooney talking about u- using the uh, Princess Di and Dodi Fayette's um, passing in the in the way that they did as an opportunity to kind of draw attention to how ridiculous the paparazzi had gotten. Um, or at least their tactics. I remember Tracy Ullman going on some sort of show. If Google Tracy Ullman, she's a, a British comedian. But at the time, she had a really hot TV show on HBO. And I remember I was a PBS kid. Um, for those of you who are not in the United States, public broadcast uh, television or service. Um, anyway... It was like no matter where you were in the United States, 
you could watch PBS no matter where you were. It was it was it was like local. It, 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 I don't know. It's kind of like local, but like not local TV. Anyway, it's like a station that had affiliates all over the country, and they played the same the same information or the same uh, shows and stuff. Anyway, it was kind of like broadcast TV before. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so I remember watching an interview that Tracy Ullman did on, I don't even remember, I don't even remember what the network was, but anyway, it was like a big thing. And I remember her using that, using Princess Diana's death and the, the crown's reaction to it as an opportunity to say, let's divest from the royals. And reminding everyone that, you know, <laughs> this, this, this family exists and the power structure exists as it is because they literally believe that God put them in place in their lineage to rule over the people of England and, every, and all of their subjects. And so she used that as an opportunity to, and, I'm, and, and hear me, I'm not saying, suggesting that George Clooney and Tracy Ullman capitalized on Princess Diana's passing in any way, but what they did do was seize the moment to talk about these very specific issues. I remember that. I also remember Prince Harry and William crying, walking behind their mother's uh, carriage, uh, the, her her cough, the carriage that was carrying her coffin. I also remember that the current king cheated on her and not liking her, or not liking him. And not liking Camilla. Um, and so watching this first episode, of course they use images from, from that past as a way to kind of color who Harry is and the decisions that he made and to draw a comparison between him and his mother and really make clear at least in the first episode, it was clear that William was his father's child and that that uh, Harry was his mother's child. You know what that, that old saying is, you, you take after the parent that you, uh, you, you, you favor one or the other parent for the most, for the most part, and, and Harry took after Princess Diana and her spirit, and, and the implication is that William took after Daddy. Charles, King Charles. And so anyway, so that's there. Um, I also didn't realize that their meeting, Meghan and, and Harry's meeting was so quick. But in the grand scheme of things, I understand both why they fell so deeply so quickly and why they cling to each other now. Because in essence, neither one of them really has anybody in their corner for real. Not any real family. Megan has more real family in her corner than it appears that Harry does. But not much. And we all know, uh, well, we've heard a lot of the the, the salacious stories behind Megan's father and, and, and how trifling he is. How trifling he behaved. But what I didn't realize, and, and this was the sneak peek, people were telling me, no, no, no. The episode, I think Megan even said, essentially she alluded to the fact that they didn't really fall out until it came out that they were 
that she and Mary or Harry were um, going to get married or were, were connected, which makes it even more pitiful. Ultimately, the reason, even though like it's was it's hard for me, it's it's it is extremely hard for me to hear the account of people who I know have black ancestry. I can tell it by looking at them that they have black ancestry, but who have the privilege to move through life not being associated with blackness and being seen as pretty privileged and all of that. There is a stigma that's associated with with being connected to being black. And, And if we really wanna go there, there is a stigma associated with being black American globally. And so I have a problem hearing the accounts of people who I know, who I can see, because again, for, for black folks, passing is, passing is not uniquely black or unique to the black experience, specifically the black American experience, but passing and colorism are the insidious children of racism, capitalism, corruption of power. And so one of the things that she mentioned in uh, not the first episode, but that she, I knew was coming and I'm just, it's hard for me to listen to the account, although every account is important, but that she didn't and this is why it's been difficult, but not the most difficult reason um, that I, or the thing that stopped me from watching the whole thing. The thing, the, re- the real reason why I'm not watching, that I have not chosen to watch the rest of the documentary is because I, their story is sad. And I don't know that I want to emotionally go there. I'm not invested in the royal family to begin with. And I was never invested in them. I thought their marriage was a wonderful event. I thought it was a cool, interesting event, but I'm not, I was never invested in them as a couple. I never fantasized about being a princess. I never claimed her as an American princess. That wasn't me because I was still unsure of who she was to me and what she meant to me. Because again, I was still kind of grappling, not negating her own experience, but like wondering I just didn't know if it applied to me. And so one of the things that just made it easier for me not to watch the rest of this was hearing a clip of her saying, I had never been treated like a black woman. I had lived my life up until a certain point, up until this point, as an ambiguous woman or not considered a black woman. And it, it was in this moment when she became part of the royal family that she became she began to be treated or at the very least the UK public reminded her and and started treating her like a black woman and that hurt me like that was that stung and i understand that she was saying that as a way to kind of wrap her own brain around making sense of how she's being treated and probably renewing her mind on how she moves in the world. I, I, I'm totally open to that, but it doesn't take the sting out of 
The fact remains, it's not a joke. It's not something that to just say. Black women specifically navigate through this world differently than most because we catch hell. That was a hurtful statement. I was treated like a black woman. What does that say? This is the first time I was treated like a black woman. What does that mean? That inherently means that black women are treated not special. They're they're mistreated often. And I don't need to be reminded of that. I don't want to be reminded of that. I live it every day. Being passionate, my passion being confused for aggression, my my challenging something being confused, being being interpreted as aggression, me being independent, being seen as me acting like I'm better than other folks, me being strong, seeming like I don't need help. It's a lot. It's not specific to black women, black Americans. Women of color catch hell in different ways, but from my, I can only speak from a black woman. Black women, it's rough because I'm judged. I'm expected to be a supporter and in many ways a protector of many people who will turn around and spit in my face. But if I don't do it, I'm seen as a separatist. And so anyway, that statement was the cherry on top of the cake for me not to finish watching it. But the real reason that I'm not, I have not chosen to finish watching the rest of it is because I don't know that I want to emotionally go there. I don't want to see the story of two lonely people becoming lonelier. And literally having to create a family from the ground up. That's not feel good for me. That feels tragic. What's more? The whole bedrock of this whole thing is that the royal family are beneficiaries of colonialism. And if Harry gotten more attention, got more support, mental health support as a child and general support as a teenager grappling with the limelight and being a royal. If Meghan's family were were a nuclear family, would we even be having this conversation? Probably it would still, her, her lineage might still be a factor. But would it have been as big as it is now? Like we, we can't predict what could have been. But I can't help but think if Harry felt differently, if Harry was treated differently in his family, if Meghan was treated differently in her family and they still somehow failed, found each other, would we be having these same issues? Uh, some might say maybe I don't know because the fact remains 
Prince William and, his, and, and Kate Middleton did a tour around the United States in, in, at the same time that this whole thing dropped and people are gushing, getting, getting news reports and stuff. They, we divested, the United States divested from Great Britain in 1776. Why is this still a thing? Why are we talking about, not even Great Britain, literally the British crown. 1776, we were not the only, we were one of the many early, we were one of the few early countries to gain independence from the British crown. Why are you walking around here doing tours and stuff like you, like what? I don't understand it. This whole conversation is is troubling to me. It's troubling. And I think I would like to be removed from it and talk about other things. Because the impact of colonialism still exists to this, we still see remnants of it today. And what we know is that that colonialism morphed into racism, chattel slavery and segregation in the United States, Jim Crow laws. Unfair judicial system mass incarceration of whole brown communities and poor communities, perpetual uh, poverty, kept in perpetual poverty because of the systems in place. Like this isn't, I don't want to have a higher conversation. I don't love the fact, I don't relish the fact that they are alone together and against an imperial system that they divested from Largely because it, and again, I would need to listen, hear it in their own words, but it feels like the the interpersonal relationships and upholding bad behavior in the media, like basically, it, but for better treatment, I wonder if we would even be talking about this. That's all I'm saying. And so I'm not at a place where I want to watch the rest of this. I'm not begrudging a person for doing it. It's just, there's too many sad things to that to talk up. I, I don't see the redeeming quality. I don't, I was never invested in them to begin with, so I don't know why I need to go on this emo- emotional roller coaster with them. Turns out I don't. And so I won't. I might be persuaded. I might decide, I might wake up one day and decide to watch the rest of it. It's not going to be this day. And so that is all I want to say on that for now. Let, switching gears... I, I, I want to mention something before I move on to um, Octavia Butler's Kindred and HBO or, or Hulu's Kindred. And I want to say that right now, um, this week, the week of this, the release of this episode, Megan, Megan the Stallion, Meg the Stallion and Tory Lanez were on trial for what, what uh, Tory Lanez allegedly did to Megan, Meg. And I was reminded because I'm on TikTok and there's a lot of legal legals on there and a lot of folks who are just smart, who enjoy sharing information. I was reminded that when this incident took place, which was 2020, they were coming from a party. He allegedly shot her in front of their friends in a car in an enclosed space 
she was injured and instead of calling the police, no, she elected to not call the police because even though he had injured her, she did not want him to be injured. And that goes right back to black women, black women, women. But in this case, it's just a reminder of what I already said. Black women are expected to be the protectors and to protect themselves. Supposed to know better to not put themselves in that situation. How many times have people questioned why she was even in the car with him in the first place? That had even happened. chastised her for not calling the police. You know her rationale? Remind I remind you her rationale. This was at the height of this was after Brianna Taylor's life was taken. This was after um the guy in Minnesota. The black man in Minnesota's life was taken. These were recent. These were fresh. This was 2020. These were fresh in her mind. I'll remind you, Breonna Taylor, I think happened in uh, February. March, we were quarantined. And then by June, uh, George Floyd. George Floyd happened, I think, in late May, early June. But Breonna happened earlier in that year. George Floyd got more attention than Breonna, but both of those things happened. And then the entire United States, every single state of the United in the United States had a protest behind pr- police brutality at one point in the summer leading up to the summer of 2020. And so with all of that as a backdrop, without judging her, she went to a party during the middle of a pandemic wanted to to leave as her account, as she shared in her account. He did not. They got into a fight, escalated as fights do if you're not actively working to de-escalate the situation. He pulls out a gun, allegedly, and fires at her feet. She takes bullets. She flees the vehicle runs to a house to get help. She does not want to call the police because she does not want him harmed. She wants to get away from him. The people that she goes to seek help from call the police, not her. Or at least someone in the neighborhood calls the police, not her. Even though she requires medical attention, she is still not calling the police on him. Do you know the mental gymnastics that you have to leap through? To be at once a victim and the the, the protector of the person that victimized you? No one should be in that position. Yet many women are in that every day. And I dare say many black women are in that position. But I don't even want to make this. I don't even want to. Black women are in this position. But any many women of color, poor women are in this position often, especially because of the nature of policing in the United States. It's a cold world. It's a cold world we live in. 
And so I hope that justice is served. I want him to be deported. I want, no, I want him to serve out prison. I want him to do prison time. And then I want him deported. I don't know if she's in therapy, but I hope she is. For her sake and the sake of any, everyone that she loves and, the, and future children, future people that would be in her life, I, I pray that she is in treatment. She needs it. What a predicament. Anyway, let me let me switch gears. That kind of got, that, I started off heavy. But let me switch gears. And before I get into, I feel the need. Before I talk about this eight-part uh, Hulu series, I got to get this piece off my chest. I have an episode about Octavia Butler's, not Octavia Butler. Yes, Octavia Butler's Kindred, the 1979 book. Um, I read it. I have an episode about it. I think it's literally called Kindred. It was, I think I did it in 2020. I might've done it in 2020. Could have been 21, top of 21, but I definitely read it during the height of the pandemic. And I enjoyed the book immensely, although I had problems with some of her unwillingness, her sympathizing, like there, there was, it was clear that when she was, when this, when she was writing this book, she wanted to have a conversation about race and slavery and racism in the United States, but there, it, there were places where she held back because it was clear that she was trying to reach a wider audience. And by wider, I mean non-black people. And by non-black people, I'm talking about white people. And so I did, I, I, although I loved the book from start to finish, I did have problems with aspects of the telling of the story. Could have gone deeper, but she chose not to. And she even said that she chose not to in certain areas because she wanted it to still be palatable for white audiences. And I understand that. I, I could appreciate how someone would be annoyed by that feeling, but remember, it's 1979. We're not as aware and knowledgeable and open about talking about these things as, as she was, as, as, as they were in the 70s. They weren't very. And so, yeah, I had problems with the writing, with the book, not the writing, but the book itself. But overall, it was still an imaginative world that she created. It was a beautiful, it was great. It was great. It was sci-fi that some of these sci-fi shows wish they were. And so I am telling you now, this season, the first season of Kindred, the Hulu series deviates in, in a significant way and two very significant ways that initially frustrated me and just to no end. And there are whole think pieces online right now about these deviations. And for a minute there, like midway through, I think I, the first episode, I, I almost didn't finish watching. Actually, it's three very specific ways that it deviates greatly from the book. The spirit of the novel is there. Dana, the main character, um, her partner, Kevin, is there. Um, Rufus, 
the little boy who we learn more about later, their family is there. Everybody has a part to play in the thing. It's just how we get there is the real struggle. And I can't help but there was a moment where I was like, girl, are you thinking about this? Like, are you becoming one of those bro-y Star Wars fans that's that's like, this isn't canon and and you got to do this and you got to do, you know, you got to do it just right. And and, and, and Octavia would never like this adaptation or even the people who who, uh, were mad at, um, uh, who were Anne Rice stands, who were mad at the adaptation, AMC's adaptation of Interview with the Vampire, with the the Interview with the Vampire. Um, I don't want to be like that. I'm open to new interpretations, but I'm only open to them when they're done well. And I will say that that this deviates significantly in parts that almost the darn near changed the dang on story but for the ways that it circles back around to the original intent or the original writing of Octavia's novel. And so it kept me hooked because I know this story. I don't know how they're going to get to it. They're taking, they're taking creative loops and twists on how to get there. But the story is still imaginative. And I remember reading this thing thinking, I cannot wait to see a good adaptation of this. And it's true there, uh, Janelle Monet was in a, something like a version of this. We know that uh, Kiki Palmer was in a version of this film that was released this year, but it wasn't Kindred. It didn't have the name Kindred on it, so it had some freedom there. But a woman going back in time and then, uh, or there being slavery, a black, a black American woman and slavery and time travel is a concept that has been explored beyond this book several times in the last two years. This epi- this se- series is the only one that put the name on it and made the direct correlation between the book and this art. And they said it with the whole chest, and that's a tall order. And it says it's based on the book. And it is based on it, but it deviates significantly. Um, and so in the next segment, I will talk all about the episode, the series, but I just needed to get it off my chest. I, it deviates. And what I will say is I don't always, I don't, I don't love the deviations because it changes the story, even though it's still a good story. It deviates in one particular way that I'll share when I go through it that really kind of makes the viewer stretch a little bit further than you would have needed to stretch in the book. Also, Dana, the character, the writing of Dana, Dana is different in the novel to how she is in the, in the series. And I don't know that that's a good thing. The superior material here is the book, right? I fell in love with the book. I fell in love with the story because of how Octavia wrote it. And so I saw always going to be in my heart. I am open to new interpretations as long as they're good. And I, I struggle a little bit in this. So I, 
But nevertheless, this is exciting to watch. It's exciting. So I'll, I'll go into it in the next segment. If you have not watched this, uh, the eight episodes, please don't listen to this episode. Rather, l- go listen to go listen to my my episode about Octavia Butler's. Um, am I saying yes? I keep because I'm thinking I'm saying Octavia Spencer, and I mean I'm anyway. Um, Octavia Butler's Kindred. Go listen to that episode I did two years a couple of years ago. If you would rather listen to that than um, the show, because I'm definitely going to spoil the crap out of the show. Um, or hurry up and binge it and then come back to this thing. But anyway, in the next segment, it is all about Hulu's eight episode season of Kindred. Okay. Stick around. Okay, Hulu's Kindred. And I keep I keep saying Hulu's Kindred. I think it's a Hulu FX. From what I'm from what I'm gathering, it's a Hulu FX collaboration. It anyway. I just call it Hulu because it's only found on Hulu. So maybe it's an FX Hulu collaboration that can only be found on Hulu. So anyway. Um it was released. Well, hold on, let me. This this has been interesting, I will say at the very least, um, to try to find a cohesive list of information. You can't just Google Hulu's Kindred and expect to get the, the regular list of information like everyone else when you Google it or like every other, like most um, pieces of, you know, shows and movies that you, that you search. Um, when you Google Who's Kindred, for me, what comes up are all the reviews, all of the articles about it, which is a mixed bag. And I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but anyway, I finally, I finally found it. It's, um, or I finally found a comprehensive list, both IMDB, well, excuse me, both, well, IMDB, Metacritic, and, um, Rotten Tomatoes have reviews um, and a comprehensive overview of, excuse me, of the, um, series itself. And I will say this, Metacritic, I actually appreciate Metacritic a little bit better than I, more than I have in the past now, because I actually went to the site and the way it's set up, it literally shows you the top reviews from critics, the top critic reviews. I wasn't sure for the longest time, I wasn't sure who exactly were ma- making the, um, who, who was contributing to the scoring. Um, now I understand it, that it is um, film and TV critics. It's just a different, they do they do things a little bit differently. But anyway, I'm um, on Rotten Tomatoes. Excuse me, I'm on Rotten Tomatoes um, s- s- review of the show itself. And so... Um, so the, the network that this thing is on is Hulu. It was released. I keep yawning and it is what it is. Um, 
released December 13th. I binged it the day it was released. Um, it stars, or it's sorry, well, it's executive produced by Brandon Jacob Jenkins, um, who I think had a hand in um, the Watchmen adaptation on HBO. Um, Ari Handel, Darren Aronofsky, um, Janica Bravo, Joe Weisenberg, Joel Fields, Courtney Lee Mitchell, and Ernest Walker. Um, the main cast includes, uh, let me go back up. The main cast includes Mallory Johnson, who plays, um, Dana James, who is our, um, Heroin. Mm. We'll leave that label there for now. You'll see why in a minute. Um, then Micah Stock plays Kevin Franklin, which we'll get to. Um, Kevin. Kevin is 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 Dana's companion, for lack of a better word. I'll come back to that. Um, Ryan Quatton. Quantin, who plays Tom Whalen, um, who is the father of a, a very important character in this series, more important than in the book. Although in the book, he was pretty important. In Octavia's, in Octavia's book, he was pretty important, but not more important than Rufus, um, who is his son, um, who was played by David Alexander Kaplan, Oh, Tom Whalen's son. Um, and then Gwen, uh, Gail Rakin plays Margaret Whalen, who, again, in the film is not as important as she is in this show. The show's making a statement, and so her, her role has been elevated. Um, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But um, these are the main folks. I- I'll say this. Austin Smith plays Luke. Luke had a role, a prominent role. Actually, all of these people's roles have been changed. Every single person that I mentioned, Kevin, Tom Whalen, Margaret Whalen, and um, Luke, their roles have been elevated. It, Octavia's, Octavia's, um, Octavia's book predominantly focused on Dana and Rufus. Here's the plot of the film. Um, a young black woman, well, the, the series and the book, a young black woman and, nope. I'm just going to go with the show. I'll leave you to read the book and go, I don't know how I'm going to go through this because I can't not talk about the book while I'm talking about the first season. And I won't spoil the book for you. I'll just get to, I will only talk about the first, the book as it relates to this first season. Um, Because I'll skip to the end and say, this first season does not tell the whole story of the book. There's much more story that's left over because there's obviously there are going to be more seasons. shoot at by my estimation at least four there are going to be four seasons of the sh- at least four seasons of the show they might be able to squeeze out a whole bunch more um 
once you get the premise of this whole thing, but let me read this, the info um, about the series itself. And it says, a young black woman and aspiring writer, which that was written poorly, a young black woman who's an aspiring, an aspi- a young black ex- aspiring, a young black woman who is an ins- aspiring writer, that's how it should have read, has uprooted her life of familiar obligation, a uh, familial obligation, and relocated to Los Angeles. Before she can settle into her new home, she finds herself being violently pulled back and forth in time. Now that, the essence of that is true to the book. Dana, Dana was from the East Coast, did move to the West Coast in Los Angeles, um, is a writer. Um, in this adaptation, Dana is a screenwriter and um, she's an aspiring screenwriter, um, but she's not, or film and TV, but she's not actually written anything. Um, in the book, she's at the beginning of her career still, but she's a little further along. Um, so that is still true. Um, where the book deviates, and this is important, and this is the last time I will, this is not the last time, but I'll give it a break for a rest for a second. In the book, um, hold on, how can I get to this? In the book, Dana has been living in Los Angeles for a minute. And her, she's also partnered. Kevin in the book is her husband. Or longtime part. Well, no, they didn't. They weren't using the term partner back then. Kevin in the book is her husband, unless I'm unless I'm remembering things or misremembering. Um, Kevin is her husband, and it's just them. They have no kids. The thing that connects them both um, in the and this is still true in the book and the film is that both of them are orphans, and that's why they've. they've Octavia spends a lot of time, or at least not a lot of time, but she, her writing, first off, Octavia, Octavia Butler's writing is, is unmatched. Even if you have problems with how she's approaching a subject, the, her penmanship is, is top tier. And so, not penmanship, but her, her, her writing game is top tier. Um, I'm sure her penmanship was top tier as well. But anyway, so... The, re- the thing that drives the two of them together, the glue, the kind of... You get the sense that Dana feels alone in the world, except for Kevin. You also get the sense that Kevin feels alone in the world, but for Dana. They cling to each other, not just because they have a mutual attraction to one another and they are fond of one another, but also because... They're drawn together in their aloneness. And there's an aspect of this in the show. It's not as re- it's not as pronounced and it doesn't make as much sense as it does in the book. And I don't understand why they did it this way at all. And I'm wondering who in the heck was in the writer's room um, because it's kind of clear. The stiltedness of the writing or the very least the lack of chemistry or the lack of strong chemistry in moments in the show kind of show through but in the book you gotta know the bond between Kevin and Dana 
was strong and it needed to be because of what was about to happen. And so, um, so this is, oh, here's the other thing that you need to know. This show, like the book, takes place over a few days. This is a time travel, this is a time jump sci-fi story. It's not in the future, it's in the past. And we've had many sci-fi pieces of art, both uh, TV and movie, and other books who've explored time travel. And we've even had, in the last two years that I can think of, other than Back to the Future, we've had um, a few shows who intentionally went back in the future and recognizing that changing the, the things of the past could impact the future. And in some of these pieces of media, it was intentional. Um, I can't think of the show right now, but there was there was a movie, there is a movie that exists that I believe was released in 2019, maybe 2020, but it was filmed in 2019, um, where the whole premise of the show is there is in the future, there is a concerted effort to safely send back to the past, to the distant past, um, agents to target certain people or stop to either eliminate certain people or change the outcome of certain circumstances because the present world that they live in is pitiful. It's environmentally trashed, um, politically devastated, and illness and, and, and plagues and things like that um, have just ravaged their, their, their whole world. And so they've sent folks back. So the concept of sending folks back um, has been explored through TV and film and um, other art several times over since Octavia brought it up. But I dare say Octavia was one of the first. 1979, one of the first who explored time travel in this very specific way. The idea is that a woman, a black woman specifically, can time travel and engage in events in history that are unique and personal to her. Here's the other thing that you note, the difference, the big difference, other than Dana and and Kevin having a tighter bond because that's that's necessary groundwork for the trouble ahead. Um, Because we're talking about a black woman and a black American woman whose roots are in deep in the United States and include slavery. Not include, her roots are, it's the bedrock of our whole founding. Not that our country was founded on slavery, but slavery was a major part. It was was part of the institution. And so anyway, so, and she needed grounding for all of the trouble that she was going to deal with. And we get, the Dana in this adaptation, this TV adaptation, goes through it. It's just the grounding isn't there so much. Um, which is important. It's really important and a little, and it kind of plays into this troubled black woman. It almost kind of plays into she needs to be the protector and the protected at the same time. And 
how do you do that? Because who's going to do that for her? And you come, you find Dana in the show doesn't have a lot of protection, but I, I will. She has more protection in the book than she does in the show. I'll get to that later. But the reason this show, I will say this, the, the writers of this show did have a dilemma that they needed to meet because the reason, the, another reason why this book worked, why the book worked, why the story was impactful, like the, the, the reason, the backdrop for the story is, um, this was, so it was published, it was published in 79, but it was, it was written, it was crafted, Octavia crafted it in 76, which was the Diamond Jubilee, um, like 150, not Diamond Jubilee, it was like the 150th year of the 150th um, celebration of the country's founding. I cannot remember the celebration, but it was a huge milestone celebration for the United States in terms of its founding. And there was a lot of buzz about history and things like that. And so the reason why she began to go back to, to go on this journey to the past was because her world was largely dominated by the celebrations of this country's founding And speaking of this country's founding, let's go back and explore what was happening following the founding, less than a hundred years after the founding, what was happening. And let's explore this this particular family line's Americanness. Let's explore this aspect of America's story. You wanna talk about history. You want to talk about what was happening 150 years ago? Well, how about let's talk about what was happening um, 100 years ago, um, 110 years ago, 120 years ago, um, where there were still whole families enslaved and and um, in service to other families and how people were not certain Certain people in the United States were not considered people. Um, let's really explore that. So that's also that is the that's the reason why she begins to not the reason why, but that's the the that's what she's dealing with. That's like the um, what am I? That's the environment. Well, not the environment. That's the societal conversation. Now remember, I said um, in the intro that Octavia made some choices in her writing so as to not to so as to allow her book to be more appealing to the masses i.e. white people but while also having this very important she's not even trying to have an important conversation what she's exploring is a fantasy based in reality many black americans including myself have white lineage that is connected to slavery that's just a fact Many of us who, whose family have said for years, for decades even, that we were, um, we had Native American ancestry, probably only said that, or many of it, and again, there are black Americans who do have indigenous ancestry by dent of where their, their people were, 
right? We know that this is true, especially if you were in the American Southeast um, or just the straight South, um, or at least the leaning towards the Southwest. Um, so think Oklahoma, Arkansas, um, parts of Louisiana, but mostly Oklahoma, Arkansas, um, and Missouri. Of course, you there, and, and then the Carolinas and Florida and Mississippi. Of course, you had um, Georgia. Even you had um, opportunities for Black and Indigenous people to commingle, um, and of course, slavery and 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 all of that. But not all of that. But <laughs> Black folk, Black families. There are several Black families that do have connections to Indigenous communities. But the vast majority of us, I dare say, I can only, I dare say that was probably started because the painful reality is half of us get our white DNA from the people who owned our ancestors. And that's not comfortable. I go and I go on Ancestry right now and have a whole bunch of white cousins that I never grew up with, that were never connected to my family, and what I, never went to a single reunion, especially on my mama's side. I got some on my daddy's side, but especially on my mama's side. We ain't never hung out, we ain't ever talked. And if I really dug in, I imagine probably didn't live too terribly far away from my family, and yet we're not connected. Why is that? Um, depending, especially when we were in the Oklahoma, Texarkana area. Probably didn't live very far. Why is that? Slavery, obvious reasons, right? Um, even on my mama's, on both my mama's side, my mama's daddy and my mama's mama, mulattoes, lots of mulattoes, come on. Not lots of mulattoes, but I can trace it to people who were identified by the census takers as mulatto. Um, and, and they went straight off how a person looked. So this person, so my ancestor was, um, light complexion. You get light complexion from different cultures, right? Anyway, so anyway, and, and what I know is the family name that my, that my mama, my mama's people carry, or at least her own and her daddy's side is a very European name. It's a pretty common European name from to a specific country. Um, yeah, it's, it's very common. My daddy's familiar name is common too, for, to a very um, European country. Um, countries that are talked about, both of them were countries that were talked about in um, the World Cup. And yet, um, you know, we never hung out. We never had white people at our reunions because of this ugly history, this ugly part. It's, it's the, we never, we never really talked about it. And so here's where I'm, here's where I'm going. I believe, at least in my family, it was was more, it elicited more pride for you to say that that family member could have been a part of, was probably 
a part of an indigenous tribe because I've only ever looked at, I've only, I was only ever taught to look at indigenous tribes with pride. They fought, they fought the, they fought the white man and they might not have won, but they fought and they fought hard and you got to admire that. And we fought hard in the way that we could too. And we didn't win either, but you got to admire that. You have to admire, like, it's, even if there were victories, they were Pyrrhic, um, very high cost, right? And we're still, uh, winning is a relative term, right? Because look at what our society is today. But I remember growing up with a reverence. And so I can appreciate how it might be easier to look at that ancestor and say, oh, you know what? That skin tone, that hair, those cheekbones, high cheekbones. Nah, she's, she's a, and the name, name a, a tribe, a, an indigenous community that you've heard before. Uh, the, the one that my family clung to, at least on my mama's side of the family, um, was Cherokee regardless of whether or not that's historically accurate. You know what I mean? Like if you look at the migration patterns and where certain indigenous communities traveled from the Trail of Tears and stuff like that, regardless of whether or not it's historically accurate, that um, our communities would even be alongside that particular um, community. That's what they said. Now, it's probably more likely that they were near the Shawnee on my mama's side of the family because my mama's side of the family lived in the Midwest for many years and it's possible especially at the turn of the century especially in the in the 18 um 1880s it was probably more likely that they were near the shawnee um oh shoot there's another and there's another indigenous community whose name i'm forgetting but shawnee the shawnee stick out to me um because they were likely they're just closer in proximity to them than many other tribes but cherokee was what they said um that, that was the, the, the community. Anyway, so anyway, where am I getting all of this? Yeah, so it, I said all of that to say many more of us, though it, it feels more noble and probably it was more noble in the 70s and 80s to say that, to claim that your ancestor with those high cheekbones and that different grade of hair and that different shade of skin um, was because of their uh, heritage being connected to an indigenous tribe. It was more noble to say that than to come to grips with the reality that their loved one was abused by the people that owned them. And so this is the, the story that I just told you. Octavia in the, in the book does not tell you all of that backdrop. It's kind of, it's kind of um, understood it's kind of understood that slave masters or people who owned other people, um, especially the men, routinely use the women for their own sexual gratification. And so this is kind of understood in the book. And so what Octavia spends a lot of time doing is having that a part of the conversation and having that be the conversation, to be honest with you, and not only be the conversation, but it is the, to be honest with you, it's the bedrock 
it is the reason why she keeps going back and I'll get she gets pulled back in essence I'll I'll um say more of that in a little bit I don't want to run ahead um but anyway and so it's still true in the in the series that the reason why Dana keeps going back is because of this very ugly part of of um, American history um, or this aspect of the ugliest part of American history, which is chattel slavery. Um, hum- uh, chattel enslaving black people. I had a really interesting conversation the other day with someone who is wants us to qualify once when we're talking about slavery needed needs it to be qualified and i understand why because slavery is not just specific to slavery was not invented by the u.s it was just chattel slavery was perfected by the u.s um anyway so but that's just stuck with me so uh, american slavery enslavement of black people um and so anyway, so that's, the, the, this is the ugly story that we're telling. And what I was about to say was, I don't envy the writers in their adaptation of this because Octavia wrote this at a um, crucial moment, a celebratory moment in the country's past. But what she, this was her opportunity, this was her offering to, to talk about the country's whole past not just to glorify the story of separate uh, being a separatist and um and, and what that might have meant but also did telling the other story other uh, other aspects of the story in the country at that time 150 years founding um or was it it's not 150 years it was 76 and 76 1776 so it was 200 years i'm tripping I'm tripping. So in 2076, it's going to be uh, 400 years, right? I'm tripping. No, it's going to be 300 years. I'm tripping. It's going to be 300 years. Um, and so anyway, so there is no celebration in 2022. There is no celebration of the country right now. What there is, is a coming to terms with our present and the issues of the present. And where do you begin? Like, what do you cling to? Again, not that it was easier when Octavia wrote the book to kind of craft it under the, the, again, even in her book, uh, Dana makes reference to the celebrations that were happening because of the country's 200th founding. Um, and it was, it the way she wrote it, it was just kind of effortless, an effortless kind of slide into her unique familial story. But like, where do you begin in 2022 with Dana, who is now an aspiring screenplay writer who moved cross-country to live near an aunt and uncle that she's not extremely close to. That's the back, backdrop of this show. Um, their relationship is not too terribly different from the book to the show. It's just we're ex- we explore it a heck of a lot more. We, you, you, we end up doing more in the series than we do in the book because the book, I mean, 
I'm a fan of the book and the way Octavia wrote it. It makes perfect sense how she approached it. The adaptation had a big job to fill because what they had decided to do was to cling. You you cannot put the kitchen sink in because in the United States, as of today, we're dealing with denying of the past, a complete denial or a lack of, of an inability or an unwillingness to talk about the, our ugly history, our total ugly history, um, because people don't be, feel, feel offended and don't want to feel responsible in any way. Um, we, and as a result, so our schools are impacted, our criminal justice has been impacted. And in fact, at this point, we've had what, since 2015, we've had, we've had six, darn it, we're working on darn near a decade of unrest due to, of a periodic unrest due to police brutality, um, blatant racists, socialists who are literally in Congress right now parading as um, patriotic Americans. Um, not socialist, not so, fascist. I meant to say fascist, not socialist. I don't have a problem with socialism. I meant to say fascism. I meant to say fascists. There are blatant fascists who are in Congress right now who are parading as um, uh, serving for all the people. We had a, a, a charlatan as a president who is a shysty 80s villain of the highest order, right? So, and, and then we're still living in the math that aftermath that he wrought, aftermath that he wrought. And so, and not to mention we're in a, what do you call it? A triple pandemic? Been living in a pandemic, pandemic now for three years. Now we're living in a triple pandemic. So where do you begin? Where in the world did you begin? I will say this, the series doesn't even talk about the pandemic. Because where do you begin? Where do you begin? So what the writers end up doing is the backdrop, instead of celebrating the country's founding, because there is no celebration of the country's founding, it's not a milestone year. Um, And we have been at this point talking openly about um, um, uh, and the enslavement of black folks and the history, the, the legacy of enslavement of black Americans and, and, and the institution of slavery itself in the, in the Americas and, and what that morphed into specifically after Reconstruction in the United States, what that morphed into, it, obviously it, it mor- morphed into, or for those who might not be aware, slavery just morphed into um, Jim Crow laws and the the institution of slavery itself essentially got um, a, a facelift and turned into imprisonment. And this is not hearsay, this is literally reality. Um, imprisonment is a legal form of slavery. And oh, we know that the majority of people who are incarcerated today are people who are black and brown in high numbers. And so, so anyway, so that's the backdrop. So what they decided to do was, well, let me take 
the, the writers decided to take this story and have it modernize it, which I don't love the modernization because whereas Kevin and Dana were married or partnered for many years prior to the story, um, when these time jumps begin to happen to Dana, in the show, she just met him like a couple of days ago. Remember I told you this whole stuff, even though when she does time jumps, I guess this is a big thing that I need to tell you. When Dana goes back in time, she's there. Time acts differently in the past than it does in the future. So in essence, a few minutes, a few minutes in the, in present day is an hour or so a few hours in the past when she does her time jumps. So the longer she stays, so six hours, six hours in um, the real world could be like years back then. This is what, what the, uh, back when she does the time jumps, this is what we come to understand. So that's, that's something that you need to know. And that was true in the book. Um, but I guess the thing about the book is So she always needed a Kevin. You can't you can't tell this Dana's story without having a Kevin. It's him being white, I think, is important to the story because of some of the things that happened to Dana. It's important that Kevin is white um, because of how certain aspects of the story play out. But it's I guess it's more important that she's partnered with someone because, again, what she's going through it's important to the story that she has support. I, it, in the book, it makes more sense that she has the support. In the show, it's almost like she doesn't have much support at all, if I'm honest. Like, Kevin is kind of like... He's two seconds from being irrelevant in the show, and that kind of is frustrating to me because he is, in many cases, the reason... That, that propels her to take a more direct approach as these time jumps get more persistent or prevalent as her day goes on. And here's the other thing that you need to do. Well, I actually already said it. I think in the book, it's literally a day and a half. In the show, it feels like it's been three. Like three days or something like that. Can't quite call it, but it's literally like a, only a day and a half for Dana in the book. Um, but let me get back to, so again, 1776, the 200 year anniversary was the, the, re, the, the backdrop of the story in the book. The backdrop of the story in this series is, I guess you can say the rise of white fragility, well, not the rise, but the heightened awareness of white fragility and the danger of a Karen. I guess that's a hard concept to wrap your brain around, but essentially the reason why Margaret Whalen has a more prominent role in the series than she did in the book is because of the writers wanting to highlight how dangerous white women are. 
I'm not joking. Literally. That was not a high concept in the book, but in the show, uh, the concept in this show, this through line in the series is how dangerous white women are, can be. Not that they're more dangerous than their white, they're in their, I mean, yeah, their white husbands either in the 1800s pre, um, what do you call it? If antebellum, I shoot, I forgot the the term, but before the emancipation and after, well after in the present day, how dangerous, like again, nosy white people. Yeah, I guess the show is like the dangers of nosy white people, the dangers of white women that we've affectionately called Karen, but these white women who feel entitled and their entitlement is wrapped up in concern for their community and their neighborhood, but it's a form of control in a powerless situation. And I can't say I love this interpretation. I appreciate the effort. I can't say I love this interpretation because it then becomes more about them. That's what you run the risk, right? When you highlight this sort of situation, you gotta be so careful not to make it the story and and unfortunately in this series it's darn near the story how dangerous white women are that's darn near the story but the story is about Dana completing this mission and she's definitely on a mission um and again we'll talk more about what that mission is well will I even talk more about this I'm gonna I said I was gonna spoil it let me go ahead and spoil it so long story short In this first season, if you read the book, there's more. I will only spoil this season. Dana meets her ancestors. She's going back to meet her ancestors. She doesn't know why. We come to know, though, that Rufus Whalen, the little boy that is... um, the little boy that she keeps when she is pulled back, when she goes back in time. At first, she doesn't realize that she's being pulled back in time. But then she comes to know as the series goes on that she's pulled back in time, but she doesn't know who's doing it or why she's going back. Midway through the season, Dana learns that, actually not midway, in the book we learn probably maybe the second, second or third jump Dana realizes who and why she's being pulled back. Probably midway in this first season, we learn that Dana's being pulled back by Rufus when he's in distress because they have some sort of a link. They are relatives. In this first season, you don't know how, you you don't learn quite how they're related until the very last episode. But in this series, but, but in, in the book, there's like a psychic connection. The, the book explores a psychic connection, and I wonder if that's something that's going to be explored in season two of this thing, um, if it's greenlit, um, which I'll get to in a, in a little bit. But there's a, there's a connection beyond the fact that they're relatives. Um, and so between Dana and Rufus, 
and they both ex- they both explore this and and you can appreciate when Dana first the first couple times Dana goes back she's perceived as a ghost or some sort of witch um and Dana in the real world feels like she's losing her grip on reality so either way it's discombobulating for everyone it's it can't be more discombobulating for her than it is everyone else or for, it can't be more discombobulating for other people as it is her because she's the one physically going through it but um yeah it's it's unnerving for all for all folks but throughout this whole book we see Rufus grow throughout this series we see him grow from being a ch- a, a, a baby to a preteen. No, an early teen. We, yeah, we see him grow from a baby to an early teen. Um, and some of the very specific instances that happened to him, it's important that we, I can appreciate why the show spent some time, did not age him into being a flat out teenager. It's not time yet because there are certain things that needed to happen. We needed to get, we needed to have Dana get acclimated to the world and meet her relatives. We needed her to understand um, or to get with the program, basically. In the book and in the show, she initially is responding as her 2022 self or her modern self in the, the, in the antebellum or in the South, uh, pre, uh, pre-emancipation South. And there are instances where that gets her in trouble. And it's, it's, it's true in the book. It's true in the series. Um, I will say, though, the Dana in the book is smarter or maybe not less defiant, quicker um, than the Dana in the in the show. They also make Dana impulsive, a little bit impulsive in the show, which I don't like. Dana didn't strike me as impulsive. Dana struck me as a woman who has few familial ties um, and who has a different view on life and has a freedom, moves about life relatively with a sense of free, a little bit more freedom than most folks have. And how that manifests in the TV show is she's flaky. And I don't love that, that, that interpretation of her. Nevertheless, that's what it is. They, and again, I don't envy the writers for trying to create this Herculean task of developing such a wonderfully written novel into a screen adaptation, but, or a TV adaptation, but they, it's something. Anyway, um, it's not a terrible something. It's just doesn't live up to all of my expectations of what, uh, of Octavia's writing. Nevertheless, I enjoy seeing this thing on the screen because here's what I know. I know there's a whole lot more story to tell. This, these eight episodes tell a lot of story. Again, we get more of Margaret than you, we, got, would have, we did get in the book, but we also get more of Tom Whalen as a precursor to getting more of Rufus because the story to come for Rufus needed to be laid. It needed to be set up in this first season. And they, they've done that because we get Rufus. Rufus is the heir to his father's plantation. And you, you, we, we are beginning to see Rufus transform into who society told him he needed to be, certainly his father told him he needed to be in order to be the head of the household when his father was no longer able to. And so 
we see that we begin to see that slow transformation. Meanwhile, we see the man that Tom Whalen wants Rufus to be because Tom Whalen is him. And so they should have chosen a less attractive Tom Whalen, but nevertheless, I guess he just did the job. Um, because the Tom Whalen in the book is terrible. Tom Whalen in the show is terrible too. Don't get me wrong, he's absolutely terrible. He's a menace. I just, well, no, the, the dude played in, in True Blood and a bunch of other things. He's a handsome dude. It's just, I wish, no, I don't. He's like the most attractive thing in here. Because I, I guess I wanted tra- Kevin to be more attractive. And he's not, he's like a regular Joe, real regular. And I'm like, how Tom Whalen gonna be more, anyway. Um, yeah, but so anyway, we get a lot of time with Tom Whalen, which I'm not mad at because the guy himself is attractive, but he's also a terrible human being. And so you spend this time, Tom Whalen is the embodiment of a slaver, a typical slaver who's on the come up. He's not, he doesn't have a, what we were, what we're minded in the show is that more land equaled the opportunity to have more property, human property, which meant that you were richer. Because all of that equal, equated to dollars. Um, and so you see Tom Whalen on the come up in this whole thing, trying to be this rich land owner and human owner. And being as such, he also, you see him becoming entitled and then using people for however he wished, misusing his wife, um, mistreating her and she's bitter. And so she takes, she takes her bitterness against her husband and her child beginning to reject her because Rufus begins to reject her and talk to her like her, his daddy talks to her. And so she takes her aggression. She can't take it out on them. She doesn't feel empowered to take it out, or to, to, have the, to confront Tom with his, about his behavior. So she takes it out on the object of his affection um, or the object of, of Rufus's affection, which is Dana. Um... She also, you get the sense that she also takes out her frustration on Tom's objects of affection. Tom is a slaver. He indulges, he abuses, he sexually assaults his, the people that he owns, the women that he owns, specific women that he owns. And we see evidence of this throughout the show, we also have a heartbreaking moment that I forgot all about this, but so slave children or enslaved black children were, were used as companions to these growing, um, to these growing, these, these children of slavers. And so what we see is that Luke who is now a more prominent role. Luke is, is, is in many ways farrier. Basically, he plays traveler or, or guide to Dana in many instances in the show. I think he does in the book too, but more so in the show. Um, and you see him. He was Tom Whalen's friend. 
And by the end of the series, he's a grown man. He, well, he, we meet him as a grown man and he has some privileges that he enjoy, enjoys. If you could say an enslaved person has privileges. He has privileges on the farm because he's um, Tom Whalen. He grew up with Tom Whalen. By the end of the series, Tom Whalen has sold off his friend because who can truly, he's not truly a friend. He's also done something else quite devastating to um, Luke before he sold him off, but we'll, I'll leave you to go watch the, the series to learn about that. Mental health is a part of this conversation too, and how could it not in 2022? Um, Dana's aunt and uncle are more prominent in this story than in the 76 version or 79 version. Um, whereas in the book, Dana's friend had a role in it and Kevin. Um, anyway, there's a lot to explore. It's, I enjoyed it. I would not give it five stars. I would not give it four. I would give it three and a half. But the story is powerful. And if you have not read the book, please find the time to read that book. Um, go listen to my episode about it because there's, it's a lot. There's a lot of good writing about Kindred. Um, the world that she's created is wonderful. Her book, it does not have a sequel. This book does not have a sequel, although Octavia uh, did write several sci-fi novels that did have sequels. This one does not. Um, the, seri the series is going to have, it's going to explore, it deviates in very significant ways um, as I, that I've already mentioned. Um, but there's more to this story and I wonder where it's gonna, how it's gonna land there. Because at the end, you know that Dana is being pulled back to the past because of Rufus, but she also needs to make sure that her line continues so that she can ultimately be born. But you don't know how they're gonna get there. And actually you don't know the why of that either. So there's a lot more story that you need to watch. So I invite you to go watch it. Um, I also invite you to read the book. And I'd love to know your thoughts. If you've read the book and you've watched the show, I'd love to know your thoughts. Um, do you feel the same way that I do um, about the series? How would you have approached, how would you have adapted this thing? Because that's a Herculean task. How would you have adapted it? Um, do you think the, the, the exploration of women, of white women's dangerous role that they played in um, chattel slavery, enslavement of black folks, is that worth being explored and how it plays out today? Um, because that's, that's a hard one, and you got to get it right, and I don't know that this always gets it right. I'm eager to see what they do in the second season. But they, I, for me, they don't always get it right, so I'd love to hear where, where you're coming from with it. Anyway, all right, I've talked long enough. I appreciate you immensely, I, so much for listening. Thank you for writing, uh, writing positive reviews and rating this thing four or five stars, sharing this with anybody you think might dig it, also sharing the episode about... Um, uh, Octavia Butler's book itself, Kindred. Um, yeah, there are tornadoes in um, Louisiana and, and 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 parts of the South, so I pray that your family is cool. I know that there are freezing storms happening right now, I, freezing rain and stuff happening right now. Please be safe. Um, 
Enjoy the holidays. Enjoy your time together for my Muslim friends. I know there's like a gang of weddings that y'all about to start going to. So enjoy those. Happy, um, well, it's, it's early yet, but um, happy Hanukkah. Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, I will say this again next week, probably, if I get, if I actually do an episode. And then um, happy Kwanzaa, because I'm going to be all over that as well. Anyway, take care of yourself. Thanks for listening. Until next time.